Before we start this episode, we have a quick message from our sponsors. If you're studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test like us, we have a great study tool for you. Besides listening to our podcast, we also use FSO Compass. On FSO Compass, you can find practice tests for every section, comprehensive courses that guide you through the entire application process, and you can even connect with other aspiring U.S. diplomats. The resources have really helped us prepare, and we hope they help you too. To access FSO Compass and get 10% off your annual subscription, be sure to use the link in our description box. Good luck! Hi everyone! Due to the length of this episode, we had to split it up into two parts, so you're listening to part two. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go check that out before you listen to this one. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of How Did We Not Know That? I'm Nat. I'm Jack. And I'm in deep. Those cleaning chambers were inspiration for the gas chambers in Nazi Germany. That's a whole, I'm probably gonna have to cut this out because that's a whole nother episode and can of worms. But yeah, that stuff happened. Crazy. I had no idea. What the heck? Anyways, continue, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the Nixon administration dramatically increased Medicaid funded sterilization of low income Americans, primarily those of color. While these sterilizations were voluntary as a matter of policy, anecdotal evidence later suggested that they were often involuntary as a matter of practice. Patients were frequently misinformed or left uninformed regarding the nature of the proceedings that they'd agreed to undergo. None of us are surprised. So in 1979, a survey conducted by Family Planning Perspectives found that approximately 70% of American hospitals failed to adequately follow the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services guidelines regarding informed consent in cases of sterilization I think the only thing that's surprising to us is that there was guidelines on sterilization. (laughs) I think we're like, this just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And then in 1981, Oregon performed the last legal forced sterilization in U.S. history. Wait, why was that the last one? Was it illegal after that? Right before like a ruling, hopefully? I think that forced was illegal. Like you can still get your tubes tied, you know, but just crazy. First of all, crazy that it was Oregon and like California and Washington who like really... It's all still America. We all got we're all in it together like (laughs) yeah yeah Um, she's right (laughs) okay so that was a brief overview of the history of forced sterilization in the u.s and now let's go back to indigenous americans i started by saying that in the 1970s doctors in the united states sterilized an estimated 25 to 42 percent of native american women of childbearing age some as young as 15 so the sterilizations subsidized by federal government and often undertaken without consent or under great duress marked the culmination of a long history of efforts by federal and local authorities to manage the reproductive lives of Native families. And this is explained by Brianna Theobald. She's an assistant professor of history at the University of Rochester. In her new book, Reproduction on the Reservation, Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Colonialism in the Long 20th Century. She says, the federal government and local authorities have long tried to control indigenous families and women's reproduction using tactics such as coercive sterilization and the removal of indigenous children 
into the white foster care system. And there was this mindset, this really fun slogan that I feel like you guys might have heard, kill the Indian in him and save the man. And that's a mindset under which the US government forced tens of thousands of Native American children to attend assimilation boarding schools in the late 19th century. And I feel like the boarding schools we've heard of, and I think it's interesting, why have we heard of the boarding schools and not like forced sterilization? Like, I don't know. Yeah, or the adoption area. Yeah, and Deep, you're really hitting like all the good topics. I feel like every little bit you say, we could literally make into a whole another episode. And we will, because it, it deserves to be spoken about more. But yeah, the, the whole adoption era with Native Americans is horrific. And then the boarding schools lasted. Do you have like the date of how long no. they lasted? But they lasted a very long time. I don't even think that a they were completely shut down like by the 70s. I don't even know if they're still shut down. Who knows? Yeah. Well, yeah, and like these boarding schools were like awful. Like, well, first of all, because like they're separated from their family. So that in itself is awful. But then additionally, like they're forced to, I guess, convert to Christianity and they're not allowed to speak their native language. They're like forced to speak in English only. So you're wiping out like people's culture and... Yeah. When they return, like sometimes they can't even communicate to their parents anymore because they were taken away so young. So they don't even remember their native tongue crazy and they're like abused and tortured and a lot of them like died in the boarding school just because they're not getting like proper care also like i don't know if you're gonna touch on this later but like a lot of what's happening like these boarding schools and the forced sterilization of indigenous women uh, also happened at the same time period in canada as well and that was like a really this was actually the first time i'd ever heard the term forced sterilization before was when i was in canada like working there and the canadian parliament were drawing up a lot of reports and doing a lot of research on the history of forced sterilization of indigenous women and there's a lot of efforts towards reconciliation about the boarding schools and this forced sterilization and like bias of police against indigenous people of canada and so like i remember like when i heard the term forced sterilization for the first time like i was like this was like two years ago too i was like i never even knew this was a thing and then i was like doing all this research on it and they're like oh yeah this happened in the u.s too of course i'm like of course like how did i not know that like (laughs) but like this happens up until 1981 so it's not even like oh it was just so long ago like we forget like no No. it's literally like it happened in the 70s yeah i just wanted to note too that like this is so widespread um yeah so yeah and i think that's important to note because i feel like a lot of us don't like i don't you know have even like a frame of reference Mm. you know like this is so new just like the concept that recovering Ooh, jack said something that i wanted to touch on what was it oh um she said okay so jack mentioned how this podcast like this episode is touching on like a lot of other things and i think that kind of speaks to how like women were like and women's like reproductive freedoms and reproductive just like the control of their reproduction was like an underlying factor in a lot of other things but it was never really spoken about right like this is like this underlying current this underlying theme that happened in like a lot of different like periods of u.s history and a lot of different oppressions it's just something that like has never been spoken about so when you're just focusing on this you kind of see that it threads throughout like u.s history which i think is like really interesting and also crazy but unsurprising that it's not talked about because it combines like misogyny like no one likes talking about women's reproduction like it's just i mean no one 
one. I love it. But like, (laughs) (laughs) men have historically been a little uncomfortable around it, you know, and it speaks about like other marginalized identities, like being um, different race, people of color, enslaved. So I think it's just like so interesting how all of these kind of this underpinning, like oppressive ruling, like this oppressive policy, you know, Mm -hmm. just like to add on to that, it shows how history because we all have said this before, but like history is a rabbit hole. And history does affect multiple things throughout time. And that's why it's important to study history because it's not like these these events happen in like little pockets. One event will like lead to another event, which leads to another event. And they all throughout generations are going to affect future mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So... And I kind of want to talk about the resistance of Native American women because we want to always humanize people and also just like not take away their agency even in the retelling. So until mid-century, mid-1900s, there was a tremendous resistance in some areas to the acceptance of government physicians. The women might tell the field nurse, yes, I'll come to the hospital, and then wouldn't. It's actually quite funny to read the documentary record. These field nurses would write in their report that they were frustrated that women who were visibly pregnant would just lie to their faces and say, no, I'm not. (laughs) I found that so funny. (laughs) In an effort to maintain reproductive self-determination to keep reproduction in these gendered and generational networks where they believed it belonged. In the 1930s, Susie Yellowtail, a Crow woman, took up midwifery because of her dissatisfaction with her own birthing experience at a government hospital. And another example was the establishment of the American Indian Movement or AIM in 1968 in Minneapolis. This was an intertribal group. Oh, you guys have you guys know about this? Yeah, Nat covered we AIM covered in it the, a little bit. Um, there was a Native American Civil Rights Movement episode. Yeah, we like covered it very briefly. So please continue. <laughs> and it's just one of several militant groups that became associated with what's called the Red Power Movement. Um, and in the 1970s, Native activism and resistance became very visible, more widespread, and ultimately coordinated nationally and internationally. And that's when Native women really started to organize independently. They formed Women of All Red Nations, WARN, the group that especially took on the sterilization abuses. Under pressure, the U.S. Government Accountability Office investigated the issue in 1976. They released a report which actually stopped short of saying that government divisions performed sterilizations coercively, but it did raise a number of concerns regarding the consent process. And in the aftermath of this report, amidst Native activism and also activism by African American and Latina women, the women who were like most poignantly affected. The Department of Health, Education, and Welfare adopted new regulations that offered some tangible protections for women, which went into effect in 1979. That's a T about their resistance. So the last topic for today is Latina women. And between the 1930s and the 1970s, approximately, wait for it, one third of the female population of Puerto Rico was sterilized, making it the highest rate of sterilization in the world. Yeah, uh, like, I can't, yeah, Nat, did you know about this? Yeah, I just, okay, so I just read this book called How to Hide an Empire. I plugged it in one of my mini-sodes, but, like, literally, like, they go over the all the forced sterilization and, like, other, I guess, like, medical experiments conducted on Puerto Ricans at the time, and, like, but, like, just a third of the population, like, that's so hard to comprehend, and is it, okay, also, this might be a stupid question but like can only women be forcefully sterilized we don't have to keep this in the episode i'm just like very no that's a great question yeah um men can too but forced sterilization usually applied to women and i think it's kind of for obvious reasons i feel like birth control usually is like the women's 
burden. And also I feel like if a woman is giving birth, it's easy while you're already in there to kind of like have another operation. That's true. If I had to guess, I would guess that men were also forcibly sterilized, yeah. you know, especially like ones who um, had a disability, like kind of we said earlier, feeble-mindedness was considered. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was curious. So some argue that the pressure to increase sterilization procedures in Puerto Rico was a targeted practice to decrease a high level of poverty and unemployment because the government blamed these issues on overpopulation. The legalization of contraception in Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican government's passage of a law allowing sterilization to be conducted at the discretion of a eugenics board both occurred in 1937. I know. Jeez. Um, soon after the legal change, a program endorsed by the U.S. government began sending health department officials to rural parts of the island advocating for sterilization. And by 1946, postpartum sterilizations happened frequently in various Puerto Rican hospitals. However, a year later, a study found that a quarter of the women who had been sterilized regretted the decision. Wow. I don't know. I feel like if a quarter reported that they regret it, like, I just am thinking, like, how many women yeah. are missing in this, um... Yeah, how many were surveyed, even? Yeah, I feel like that doesn't, like, accurately reflect the... Gen- like the true feeling of women even if it was just a quarter a quarter is still a lot of people a lot of people and catholics and nationalists fought against the sterilizations in the 1950s which eventually resulted in the law being repealed in 1960 and also i thought this was really interesting in puerto rico family planning clinics could be found in factories that provided free sterilization thanks to a usaid grant which is wow What's an AID grant? What's that? USAID, like USAID. Oh! USAID, yeah. It's the, for the listeners who don't know, I guess, because it's not a very well-known government agency, um, it's a federal agency that um, is kind of in charge of, like, international aid, and I interned with them a few months ago, and it's just not a good look. It's not a good look. (laughs) I don't think, we just don't do this anymore, or they don't do this anymore. (laughs) I was like, how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Through this program, Puerto Rican women became the guinea pigs for U.S. pharmaceutical companies who were developing the modern birth control pill. Once again, mixed feelings, because it's not like modern birth control and the pill, like, has helped a lot of women, but, like, the history's so dicey, and I feel like at the heart of it, like, I feel like the thing to remember is that whether or not it's good or bad depends on, like, the opinion of the woman who's like affected by it birth control isn't good or bad Mm -hmm. you know and like sterilization or whatever the procedure is called now it's not like good or bad depending on like whether you want it or you don't and that's it you know that's true right so i think it's an important distinction Mm -hmm. maybe to treat women as human yeah i don't know that's a good idea (laughs) what a thought i don't know i don't know in deep that's pretty radical (laughs) i know it's controversial (laughs) it is (laughs) radical So forced sterilization was also common in California. And so there was this one case, Magical versus Hooligan, in 1975, that was a federal class action lawsuit in which these women fought back after being sterilized without informed consent or under duress. And so these women kind of refers to Latina women, Latinx women. There was Dolores Magical, who was one of the 10 plaintiffs in the case, and she was told that her sterilization could easily be reversed, which I can't. Jovita Rivera and Georgina Hernandez said that they were pressured into agreeing to the procedure after being intensely criticized by doctors and nurses for being poor and having children. So these are haunting stories, but especially the one of Lavina Hernandez, who she didn't even find out that she'd been sterilized until years after her son was born. At the heart of the case was a question of whether women were coerced into being sterilized, and if so, if Latinos were targeted. And at the end of the trial in 1978, the judge ruled that, get ready for it, 
Neither of the charges were true, citing misunderstandings due to the fact that the women primarily spoke Spanish. The judge blamed their distress from the procedure on cultural background that made these women believe that their worth was in their ability to have children. So basically he was like, nah, they weren't coerced, nah, Latinas weren't targeted because, I don't know, they spoke Spanish and they also felt that their worth was in their ability to have children. That's so messed up. Wait, what year is that again? 1978. Oh my god. So another cause of the decision was that voluntary informed consent was not a legal requirement, which is crazy, until 1974 after the case was decided. At the time of the procedures, there were no serious legal objections to asking women to consent to an irreversible procedure while she was in the middle of labor. Although the Latina women did not win the case, Madrigal changed state laws and helped to solidify the careers of various Latino politicians. So, you know, not nothing. Okay, so kind of all of the history that I have. I just kind of wanted to chat a little bit about the effects of these, like how they still last today, and how for all women, there's like a lot of things that kind of affect us personally that, you know, maybe we should be thinking about that aren't really conversations that are had. And some of these questions are like what it means to be a woman and how being a woman is inherently political. And that's true because, you know, women are like marginalized. Um, There's a lot of policies that kind of hurt women's ability to be equal members of society and also a woman of color and what it means to be able to control one's own reproductive future. Because I feel like we talked about before, like even just having children is terrifying. And even just like the responsibility of that is terrifying. But the fact that we're able to control that on an individual level and how powerful and privileged even those concerns are is like really crazy to think about you know yeah so I don't know let's talk about those things I feel like do you guys have any thoughts on those (sighs) yeah yeah (laughs) that's a that's a really good those are really good questions I guess, um, I don't I mean, like, I'm in agreement. You can't ignore historically the ways in which women, especially that layer of color, the ways in which people of different color have been treated historically and the way that your gender will affect, like, what jobs you can take. And that this is, like, societal pressure, but also there are actual laws in place that, like, keep you from having the vote. They keep you from having government representation. They keep you from getting to study certain subjects in school. Like, yeah, there's just, like, so many layers. And I, when you were talking about um, all the ways in which there has been, like, sterilization of different colored women, I also want to add to, I know, like, Asian women are not super part of this narrative. And the reason that could be is because, actually, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, Asian women were not allowed to enter the country during this time up until the 1950s so you know there's so many other layers and asian women are not excused from this there are lots of things that were happening over in east asia and southeast asia too and this is something that affects everyone globally and melinda gates and like michelle obama all do a lot of work with like girl empowerment around the world and it's proven time and time again with statistics that whoever suffers the most in our global sphere is going to be like a colored woman like this does not surprise me that i have not heard of a lot of this before because like I feel like the feminist movement in general and like women's history in the U.S. is so whitewashed and like we only learn about white women in the U.S. and like just the fact that this was ah, I just can't get over the fact that this was happening until the 80s and like no one's no one's talking about it especially like 
coming from Canada where like they're doing so much research and so much reconciliation efforts and like just trying to bring awareness to the issue and like educating the people the efforts are a lot <laughs> weaker here compared to what I've seen in Canada at least that I'm aware of going off your point Nat in deep I want to ask did you discover any like reparations that have been made to make Ooh. right these wrongs that have happened yeah I think that there has been an effort towards reparations I'm not sure like exactly which population I do remember there was like talk about or just like um, mentioning about how like some families who were um, affected by forced sterilization I think it might have been indigenous families where like they tried to um, give them reparations but at the same time I think that there was also talk about like how it isn't entirely successful you know and it isn't entirely like there is a consensus that like the reparations are not ideal but I think that reparations were attempted by the United States I don't know how can you repair like I just feel like it's impossible because it's like right history builds on itself so how can you repair like breaking down a whole civilization you know like how can you like what way like just history like just the current state of the United States would be entirely different like there's nothing you can do to fix that bring that back or like make it okay you know right right I think there's value too, though, and in, in that attempt should still be made. I think like a lot of yeah. people will use that argument and they'll be like, well, you know, like each generation should start fresh and there's nothing we can do. It's in the past. No, each generation is not starting fresh, though, because of the past. <laughs> so there should be a continuous effort to make those reparations and to help the people that are now suffering. And OK, I was because I was watching a finance video, as you guys know, I love and we're talking about the economics of what it's like to graduate in a recession. And so think about the 2008 financial crisis, all of those people graduating the recession. And now it's projected, these are statistics, it's not my opinion, they have lower earnings, they have less probability to start a family, less probability to, to buy a house because they were slammed with these loans and lower pay wages because you're graduating in a bad job market, less opportunities, they're not in the same places as their parents were for building wealth for their families. And that's nothing that they did. I think we all can agree economically, you got dealt a bad hand. And it's not anything that you did. You like went to school, you did the right things. And if you can think about that, and then you can shift your mind to understand that that's exactly what happens to people of color. It's nothing that they're doing wrong or anyone in any oppressive. I want to like, I'm from Appalachia. Appalachian is like white working class. There have been problems with that group as well. There are white immigrants as well who have dealt with things. But the point is that like sometimes things are not within your control that have happened to you and now you're dealing with all of the repercussions of that throughout generations and that's nothing that you did wrong and that that's up to us who are in positions of power and privilege to help in any way that we can if that makes sense. I, that's how yeah. I see it. Yeah. That's some hot tea. I 100% agree. I do realize that that argument is an argument to not making reparations. I think I was just being a little bit like, how could you ever, you know, like I understand. <laughs> I understand, yeah. You know, but that is a good point and I think that I should be like a little more mindful of like the way that I kind of say like, oh, but you can't even do it, you know, because that is a good point like it's not possible to completely make mm-hmm. up for what's been done but also like yeah. if there's no effort then like you're you're just still doing it yeah well it's like population control is something that's so permanent like yeah like you said like how like how can you make up for it but like at the very least we could at least educate ourselves and like promote awareness but, like how are we supposed to come up with not a solution necessarily but like how are we supposed to respond to this and like help promote change if like no one knows about it you know yeah. so mm-hmm. I hear you 
you. So we already touched on this, but I also want us to think about how some of these practices and problems may be ongoing and the repercussions of them are definitely ongoing in the US. Even the fact that we were shocked that it was happening in like the 70s and 80s, like it's 2020, you know? We were so shocked that this was policy because this is obvious that these policies were not written by the people who were affected, right? Like the fact that I'm still surprised when I see women of color in Congress, the fact that that's still shocking tells us that like we're not at the point where the communities that are affected by policy are an equal representation of the ones making the policy. I guess those are my remarks and uh, yeah. how about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> to add on to that, I recently read an article by the New York Times talking about healthcare bias towards black women in like the healthcare sector and how more women of color had died during childbirth because like kind of like you mentioned earlier like perception of pain like there's a bias that people of color women of color don't feel as much pain so if women like say they're in pain or there's something wrong like they're not going to be believed as much so like that's another thing that's like oh this is like there's still a lot of issues ongoing today thank you so much indeed like that was incredible and like so comprehensive and like I literally I learned so much um and there's so many topics that you brought up that like I want to look into maybe we could do it in future episodes like everyone encourage you to do like individual research too um but like we mentioned um there's still ongoing effects uh yeah ongoing violations of women of color's bodies so yeah don't forget um, <laughs> Don't forget. And also, it was my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, great job. Yeah, All thank right. you, indeed. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, guys. It was my, I can talk about women's reproductive health and intersectionality <laughs> and all of I can literally talk about it all day. Like, oh, we love. Yeah. yeah, we're bringing you back for another episode. Yes, you know, so yeah, awesome. it's already yeah, incredible. I love it. <laughs> all right. All right. Bye. 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 This has been an episode of How Did We Not Know That. If you liked it, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on all social media, including YouTube, at How Did We Not Know That. If you thought our podcast was low quality, we know. We thought so, too. Help us improve the podcast by contributing to our Patreon. Thank you for listening, and see you guys next week.